Good day, listeners. Welcome to another episode of Palo Talk. Today, we'll be taking a look at a trend that has beset a democratic dispensation for a while. This is the recycling of our political office orders to continue in political offices through power of incumbency or through the political capital they've acquired in their political experience. This issue we've broken down into two strands. The first part of it is the Godfather situation. This is where political candidates are favored by certain political godfathers. We've seen different types of godfatherism in Nigerian politics. We've seen the self-styled godfathers who trade who traded their political capital to put candidates in office and their godfathers who grew into it based on their popularities, privileges, and powers they have enjoyed while in the office themselves. In the case of the letter, we, we have the example of late Adedibu of your state. And in the case of the former, we have the Jagaban himself, Bola Ahmed Tidobu, and late Ulushola Saraki of Kwara State, to mention a few. The other part of this topic will be people that have continuously sought re-election in a bid to build their political hegemonies as well. We've seen governors, after completion of their constitutional tenures, retiring to the National Assembly by default. The, the current eight Senate has 15 past governors as senators, including the recently convicted Joshua Darie of Plato State. At the moment, about eight outgoing governors have made their ambition to run for senatorial seats in their constituencies. No. Fun facts. Senator David Bonaventure Mark is the longest serving senator in Nigeria today. And he has spent 11 years in the Senate. The longest serving senator ever in the United States of America is Robert Byrd. He spent 51 years, five months in the Senate. While we do not necessarily think any of this is inherently bad for our democracy, we will be considering the effects of this on our democratic process after this soundbite. To everyone who is a Lajadidu and nominated candidate to be in that position or this position, through the help of God, I started my political career in 1951. Today in the country, in our country in Nigeria, I haven't seen anybody whom we started together and still functioning as I am today. I can dictate to anybody on political issues because I, 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 I'm, I'm the, I have the last year on political decision in your state today. Immediately he became the governor, he completely changed to how he was before he became a governor. He's collecting 65 million naira a month as security money. I 
Am I not entitled you to one quarter of cat every month? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You are, you are now mentioning something. I, I don't want anything from him. He should go away. It's not about the individual. When I was the governor of Lagos State, this is the poorest state I inherited. Today is the richest state. I left a great legacy. I am a talent hunter. I put talents in office. I help them to do that. So it will be reflected at the federal level. Life is dynamic. If the party who made me the leader of the structure in Lagos says what they want, it's only if you have followership that you are a leader in democracy. If I look back, I don't find them again. If I don't respond to them, if I fail to assist to their request, I will have failed the leadership test. Welcome back. Without further ado, I would like to welcome Yomi to the program. Yomi, it's good to have you. Thanks for having me. So, this is a very tricky one because with regard to democracy everywhere in the world, I've I followed American politics for a while. I've uh, followed uh, the politics in the UK for a while. It's normal to have politicians or some so-called career politicians who just continue um, in in their political in the, in the political space. They remain to be active in political space for a very long period of time. I think the longest serving senator in the United States actually spent 51 years in the Senate. I was I think I saw that uh, last week. Yeah. And you've got um, people spending as much as 35, 36 years in the Senate, 38 years in the Senate. And in the UK as well, people in the House of Commons, they, 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 they're in the House of Commons, uh, they take it as a career. Yeah. And you go to some schools, and you know, people graduates of this school are meant to be uh, or are loosely regarded as being groomed for public office. Yeah. So this whole process can be, I, I've managed to class, uh, classify them into two groups. So we've got the uh, first group I call Godfatherism and 
the emergence of political dynasties in Nigeria. Right. So, and we've got um, the pockets of politicians that frivolously seek re-elections just to just some sort of um, concede to get some sort of well compensation or remuneration here if you if you want from remaining in political offices so i'd like us to break this down and talk to talk about these two um these two classes one after the other right right so let, let's take the first one yummy godfatherism is, let, let's even start with this is there anything wrong in political godfatherism um, <laughs> that's an interesting question. Uh, on a personal note, I do not think that there's anything wrong with political godfatherism. Um, because, as we all know, politics is quite um, an interesting game. Yeah. Um, it, in the sense that it's basically about allocation of resources. Yeah. And in every society, you have people by virtue of um, experience who have literally been there and done that. And yeah. obviously, so by virtue of their experience in the past, uh-huh. they be better suited to um, basically negotiate around how certain things should be done. Right. Right. And so, to that extent, and from from a you know a, a cultural perspective, Africa is a very very um, cultural continent in the sense that obviously it's hierarchy uh-huh. in that sense. So you have you know, in every society, in every typical society in Africa, you have the elders of that society, you know, wanting to guide, so to speak, and um, you know, lead the way in, as far as deciding what becomes the lot of a particular society is concerned. Yeah. And so that's how far, that's as far as it goes in Africa. Now, if you then have to look at the countries that we borrowed this whole concept of democracy from, you will understand that they actually have political godfathers as well. And, you know, just to relate it to what you just mentioned about the rise of political dynasties. In all these countries, you have political dynasties. You have the Clinton dynasty in the U.S., you have the Bush, the Bush dynasty. Yeah. You have the you have the Powell dynasty, you have the um, Condoleezza Rice, you know, the Rice dynasty. Yeah. You know, so it's always been like that. Now, what... The, the, the power wielded by that dynasty or by each dynasty is usually a reflection of how much room society allows them. And that is the significant difference between political dynasties in other parts of the world as opposed to political dynasties in our continent, um, particularly in this case, in Nigeria. So, for example, in Nigeria, you have, you know, the Saraki dynasty, and dynasty, you have the Tinubu um, dynasty, you have the, the, the former strongman of Ibadan politics, you have the Dibu dynasty, you have the David Mack dynasty, you have the Babangida dynasty, you have the Basunja dynasty. So, but the only difference, like I said, is the fact that the, the, the political dynasties in this part of the world wield so much power to the extent that they basically decide or determine who becomes what, as opposed to, you know, in other times when all the political dynasty would do is to support your candidacy. At the end of the day, the, the power to decide who becomes what still ultimately lies with the people. 
and that for me is the basic difference and it's a fundamental difference because when you when you really analyze it it affects how we run certain things how our politics is run and how even you know the people have access to basic you know um, resources amenities and you know what have you so in that sense going back to the question you asked i don't personally see anything wrong with having political dynasties. It's just what people do with that power that they wield that raises a fundamental question that people should you know, attempt to answer. Okay. Well, thanks for that. You're welcome. If, if I can add to what you've said. Okay, yes, yes. I, I personally don't think there's anything wrong with political godfatherism as well. I yes. think the way democracy is structured yes. or public office is structured the the organs or the machinery of states yes. has a lot to do with experience yes. and government itself is a continuum. Absolutely. So it's important that there's a structure and order that may be sometimes unconventional because as we know, Godfatherism is not provided for in any uh, defined uh, law. That's correct. So, but it has to be unconventional structure and order to carry uh, to make sure that governance continues in a certain way to achieve the will and aspiration of the people. What people now do with that uh, uh, phenomenon is completely different. It's different. It's a bo- different ballgame entirely. And yes. obviously, we know sometimes there's personal interests and it gets too personal, uh, which kind of trumps the national interests in the way people do things. And that's where things actually fall by the wayside. Which now, which, which brings me to the, to the next part that I, I, I want to ask you. Godfatherism in Nigeria, since 1999. Yes. I, know, I know you mentioned um, dynasties, uh, if, if you allow me to use that uh, word in a very loose sense. Yes. Of, um, of uh, f- families or households like uh, the Saraki dynasty, the Obasanjo yes. dynasty, the the um, ever-growing Tinubu dynasty. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah, I have to qualify that. Uh, <laughs> and lest we forget the Igbinedion dynasty as well. Oh, that's true. Yes. 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 So, and we have more. So we yeah. see uh, we have uh, a mushroom dynasty that's springing up here and there too. But as time uh, won't permit us to actually get to every one of them. But let's look at the key ones I've, I've, uh, that I've just mentioned. Yeah. Do you think these dynasties or these godfathers, and I didn't, if I can put Adedibu, the late Adedibu, Olusha Molite, Yes. In there as well. Do you think they've actually helped our democracy in any way, or do you um, think they've, do you think they've um, offered more benefits than um, do harm to our democracy? Well, I I do not think that if you if you do a cost benefit analysis, I don't think that the benefits they. Um, provided to our system, to our democracy, I would not say that the benefit outweighs the, um, the, the cost to the system. And, and I say that with um, every sense of responsibility because, like you said, and I like what you particularly mentioned about you know, the, 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 the divergence between 
the national interest and the personal interest of these people. Right. So at every point in time, what should inform, I mean, the ideal situation is what should inform the ultimate choice of who becomes anything, whether you're being supported by a dynasty or not, should be the national interest, right? Or the interest of, you know, whatever environment is throwing you up. But what you've seen in the past, or, you know, from the examples you have provided in terms of the names of certain dynasties, is over time, that's the elevation of personal interest over and above national interest. For example, let's just, you know, I know that we have not really mentioned examples from the Southeast, but you would recall that in this country at some point, the governor of Anambra State was kidnapped by so-called Jesus Godfather just because he was not dancing to the tune, because we all know that he will pay the back for the take his tune, which is what happens here. The nature of the relationship between the political godfather and the political godson, so to speak, is very transactional. It's usually a case of, I make you this person, and in return you're supposed to service certain, um, um, you know, mechanisms, certain, uh, you know, um, structures. So the godfather to that extent becomes the superstructure that the political godson is supposed to service. But what you have found over time is the situation where it becomes so burdensome on the state, you know, that the state almost grinds to a halt. You will recall that in that number example, that state grinds to a halt. The point that, you know, governance came to a standstill. The same thing happened in the case of um, Adidibu and um, I think it was Ladoja, yes. Ladoja, yeah. Yes, where reportedly, reportedly said openly that, you know, bring the, um, you, you have to allow me access to the till or to the coffers of the state. Of the state. Yes, so that because we made you governor and as by virtue of that, you're supposed to not deprive me of that unfettered access to the state coffers. Yeah, and if I can button, if I can button, Adedibu actually said on a live interview that, well, he's getting security votes from the state, that Ladoja was getting security votes from the state, that as his godfather and having installed him, is entitled yes. to a percentage of that security vote, even though the security vote is meant for the office of the governor. Exactly, exactly. And like you rightly said, the, the name itself, the title of that vote is security. By virtue of the governor, by virtue of being the governor of a state, you're the chief security officer of your respective state. And that leaves... It makes you in charge of all the security, um, you know, the, the, the responsibility of ensuring that your state is secure. Now, when a political godfather that, for all intents and purposes, is not recognized by the constitution, it does not in any way occupy an official, any official post, is openly telling you, the political godson, that he has access or you should have access to the security vote. It tells you everything that is wrong with what our people see as this political godfather, so to speak. You know, like you said, let me use that word list as well. So it tells you everything wrong with the way we're approaching it. The influence of the political godfather should not go beyond that. Like we said, our common definition that both of us agreed on when we started this episode is the fact that you're supposed to guide by virtue of your experience. You're supposed to lead the way. Because really, the business of governance is a serious business and you cannot leave it to the mob. 
the masses usually would need someone to guide and to instruct in terms of this is how to go about things, this is how things are done. And so when a political player now descends to the arena and wants to make himself the ultimate um, you know, beneficiary of the process, it, 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 it runs counter to everything that democracy stands for. And that is why you have seen, if you look at the trend in Nigeria, virtually every political godson at some point or the other in their, in their political journey about to disagree with their political godfather. For example, let us look at the immediate example of what has happened in Lagos State, of you know, a situation where you had the governor, the incumbent governor, rumored or reportedly said to have you know, gone in a different direction to what the Godfather would have wanted him to be. And to the point that the primaries, the, um, the um, primaries of his, the ticket, the ticket of, you know, his second term ticket was taken away from him and given to someone else. You know, almost, yes, for all the wrong things that you may think or you may ascribe to the person of the incumbent governor of Lagos State, you cannot take away from the fact that that um, rivalry, so to speak, that fiction was of could be could could be traced to the fact that at some point there were certain demands reportedly being being asked of him by his political benefactors, and he, he felt like he could no longer meet up to those things. Again, if you go to Saraki um, in Kwara State as well, you would recall that the the Olushala uh, Saraki, the, the the late father of the current Senate president, brought his son to become governor, right? So the son became governor, you know, against the wish of the, you know, all the political, um, the mushroom godfathers in the state at the time. The man insisted that his son was qualified. The son actually became governor. Um, I was in a lawyer at that time. I was in Carlisle. You know, arguably he performed. He did all sorts of things. But when it was time for the young man to leave his position, the, the godfather who happens to also be, who, who was his biological father as well, insisted that it was the turn of his elder sister. You know, um, uh, um, I can't really remember her name now. Bimisola Saraki. Is it Bimisola Saraki, yeah? Yes, I mean, to the point that his son openly disagreed with his father, to the point that he insisted that he was going to be someone else. Now, he was able to install the current governor of Kwara State of uh, retirement as his own political governor. So basically, you have a situation where a political godson is having a political godson. Yeah. And then at the end of the day, you know, there were issues there and there. The man succeeded. And Saraki, the, the, the late father, never recovered from that um, bitter loss because it was, it, it, it was rumored to have never lost any political battle. He lost the first political battle to his son and he never recovered. But at the end of the day, what happens? The, 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 the consequence of all of this is the fact that you have people fighting not on principle, not on how to govern, not on how to deliver excellent service to the people, but on who becomes what, who becomes what. You had a case of, just to go back a little bit to Adi Dibu's case, that Adi Dibu was responsible for virtually every commissioner in the administra administration of Adi um, Ladoja at that time. So you would you would ask yourself whether in real in, in the reasons of it whether that would have benefited the people of your state and it happens like that across board. So to go back to the question you asked, I would not say that the benefit 
has outweighed the cost. Especially when you think about the fact that in Nigeria, and we've only just talked about the political appointments. We have not talked about the contracts. How the political godfather just sends a contractor to you and demands of you to approve a contract without Without due process. process. Exactly, without due process, you have people, contractors being awarded road projects, construction projects, serious projects that infrastructure projects that ordinarily should affect the people's lives positively. But then you have situations where those projects are given to people who do not have the technical capacity to deliver on those projects. At the end of the day, you have roads constructed in Nigeria that do not last three years. You, you have buildings that collapse just even before they are completed. The cost of that is that people are dying on a daily basis by virtue of the fact that projects have been awarded to people who have no business handling such projects. Yeah. I agree with you. I totally agree with you. And if I can add to what you said, Excellent. Excellent. and I'm, I'll, I'll go back to your example of Lagos State right. with respect to... Tinubu and and the current governor of Lagos State, uh, Akinwumi Ambodi. It's obvious that because I, I watch um, Tinubu's interview where he said that the people don't want the uh, members of the party don't want Akinwumi Ambodi again. That who is he to now go against the wish of the people <laughs> of the party? <laughs> And on the day of the primary, we could see people or party agents coming out to say that what is often a lot of people and the cocoa body. You understand? So we're talking about one person who holds all the machineries and workings of a political party in a state, uh, and uh, let's even say in a re- in an entire region in the whole of Southwest, yeah. arguably who is claiming that he's following the wish of members of his party. And clearly we all know it's based on what he decides. Exactly. Without getting into the details of whether Ambode was doing the right thing or was governing the right way, it leaves a bitter taste in the mouth. How the whole electioneering process, the primary for the primary election was carried out to show share, it was shared demonstration of will and might yes. from a political godfather or a political structure. Absolutely. And to make a statement to uh, aspiring um, public office holders that if you don't pay the right homage or you don't dance to the tune to, of the absolute power, you'll be rooted out without 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 question so so on that on that note sometimes um the power of political godfathers in nigeria sometimes is allowed to fester and it becomes too excessive which is what happened in the, or your state as well i know um in the case of late uh, i i know he's dead now um but it's it's almost similar, maybe in a refined version now. We're saying in Lagos State, because at least Lagos is kind of working. Yeah. 
Arguably. Then, yeah, arguably, arguably, yeah. That, that would be another discussion. But, but that, then we had, like, broad day, brazen violence everywhere in Lagos State. Yeah. The state's government house, in your state, I'm sorry, uh, and the state government house was sacked. And the gov- uh, governor had to go in, uh, into hiding for many yes, months. I recall I was impeached just, by just about six. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, it was impeached by a number that does not form a quorum. So that said, at the end of the day, you, nothing happened. So it's clearly an assault on democracy. Well, because it's a godfather, they have no legal um, or they don't have no legal function in the running of the affairs of the states. They are known to the uh, wheels and machinery of the states. But they, they, they still... They still remain the, the, the potholes and the obstacles to fully realizing the, the will of the people. So it's important that why, because I know Tinubu has talked about the Lagos master plan. Now, oh, right, yeah. And Kim Wumiambode is not following the Lagos master plan. The question remains who decides the master plan? People did not vote for Lagos master plan. People did not vote for um, Tinubu. People voted for Akin Wumiambode to be the governor. So, and they voted for the ideology of APC, not Tinubu. So, for some person, so for someone, and no, don't get me wrong, I, I have, I have a ample respect for for the man for Tinubu. So, but, but it is beyond one yes. person to say this is where or, or this is the will of the people. Yes. Do, do you understand? So I, I feel it's, it's, it's quite crucial that while we're saying that political fatherism in itself is not bad, but it, it must be, it must not be used or it must not be expressed in, in a very, in an absolute term. If that makes sense, so it has to be. It has to be. We have to be careful while we say that, and it has to be something that falls or respects the will and aspiration of the people, and not subvert it in any way. Because going back to that primaries, I worked at King Wumi's uh, Ambo's primaries, and I'm telling you, there's no way the guy can be so unpopular as to the result he got in that primaries. But you. But you could tell from the from the saying of the people around as well that people will be scared to actually vote for Ambody because if you go there, it's an open, uh, it's a direct primary. If you go there to stand under Ambody's poster, I can, I'm sure that people will fear being assaulted and being violently attacked if they did. So, so yeah, they just have to pay eye service and say, oh, okay, well, if, if you know Lamalo, but the will of the people have to be respected. That's in the interest of democracy. Competition yes, has to be absolutely. healthy. And, and just to add to what you've said, and briefly, as a matter of fact, it was widely reported that the, the only reason why Lagos State was at the forefront of that call for open primaries was to demonstrate that raw power 
to also send a message, like you rightly pointed out, to other aspirants as well that look, we, as far as the state is concerned, we have it on lockdown. So you either tow our line or you're shown the way out. To the point that even the man's deputy governor did not queue up behind him. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that. And I found that very funny. It just shows you how all the members of, all the um, House of Assembly members, all the reps from Lagos, basically... All the Lagos, all the local government chairmen. Local government chairmen. All of them came out emphatically to say that they had withdrawn support. There was no way they could have done that other than the fact that they were being, you know, um, encouraged... And control, control from above. And this is what makes it very dangerous. When the entire machinery of the state feels answerable, not to the people, but to an informal person who is not recognized, who is not answerable to the people, it becomes very dangerous because at the end of the day, it becomes a case of evil pays the pipe and he pays the tune. As a matter of fact, there were rumors at that time that the governor was considering, you know, going to the PDP or, you know, going certain lines. But then they had to tell him that, look, having seen the power and the political clout of the people who are against you, it, it would be wise on your part to just quietly let this go. Because what... Exactly. And because because of what you were going to do would be more even disastrous than what has just happened to you. And the, the man quietly had to, you know, throw in the towel. It just tells you the, the kind of power that these people wield. Now, you, you can have an argument as to whether that is good or not. Like you rightly pointed out, the idea of, that, of the fact that Lagos has a master plan. Now, whether that master plan is indeed for the benefit of the people remains, you know, it, it can be argued. But then, because we practice democracy, the ideals, the, the ideal principles upon which democracy was founded is that it's a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. The people ultimately decide who rules over them, not the godfather in the corner. At best, what the godfather should do is to guide and encourage and advise. But when the godfather assumes the position of a god and then begins to turn things in the affairs of men, like Shakespeare would say, things are beginning to take a dangerous turn and people should watch out. Oh, thank you for very much about that, Yomi. Uh, I know we can we can actually talk about Godfatherism alone all day. So, well, uh, because of our time, um, I'd, I'd I'd like us to just in few words to just talk about wrap that uh, this part of the segment wrap that up um, by by just saying what do you think um, is the way forward or what possible suggestion can we Add to what we've said to this godfatherism and how it should be better managed to help our fledgling democracy. Right. Okay, well, I always say that I'm a very realistic person, right? So you're never going to get to a point where you totally phase out this need for godfathers. And again, like we have both said, it's a case of, I, I, I like to call it benevolent dictatorship, right? So you have a dictator who is a dictator, but of course is benevolent. In other words, it allows you to enjoy certain benefits, as opposed to having an absolute dictator. You understand? So some of these godfathers, whether you like it or not, they still have, for example, as compared to other godfathers in the past, you can say, for example, that Etinubu is in support of the progress of Lagos State. 
you know, Lagos State has grown from what it used to be in 1999 on account of the fact that the man has painstakingly made sure that everyone who succeeded or who succeeds, who, who, who takes over the reins of leadership in Lagos towards a particular line. But what happens when Tinubu is no longer around? Or what happens when a particular godson decides to take a different route? Because the thing about governance is that there is, there is no one rule, it's all approach. So your political godson may decide that, well, I'm not going to take this route, I want to go some other route. So the point I'm trying to make is we need to get to a point as a people where we become so involved that it becomes almost impossible for the godfathers to be this powerful. They're still going to wield some power because, again, one of the things that has made godfatherism very, very prominent in our politics is the issue of money politics. You would recall the Uba case in Anambra, how the election of Chris Ngigi was bankrolled, and then he had no choice than to dance to that tune until it became unbearable. The same thing in... So, at every point in time where you have the issue of godfatherism, you can only trace it to the money. The fact that someone at some point contributed so much to your emergence as a political candidate that it now becomes a duty on your part to reward or to you know, provide a return, so to speak. So now, when we deliberately make that this, the influence of money in our politics less pronounced, we'll also be dealing with that issue. But again, like I said, being a realist, I know that to the extent that Nigeria still remains a poor country in the sense that what is the worth of an average Nigerian? What does he want? What what do our people do on election days? Like you have you literally have a situation where people you know run around wanting to sell their votes to the ice bidder. You have allegations of elections being bought with you know three I think the past if it's election, I can't remember how much they said, but you had allegations of people sharing as much as ten thousand naira to people who have shown that they voted for a political party. Now an average candidate in Nigeria doesn't have that kind of um, political and um, financial war check. So you have godfathers coming in to bridge that gap. And as long as that exists, you would always be answerable to them. So what we can do, just to round up is, number one, there has to be a massive sensitization of the people. That people should understand that, look, well, yes, our situation is like this. We're not so well off as a people. But then our way to becoming a developed country is by getting rid of all these external influences that make our leaders not answerable to us, but onto certain cabals and certain corners. Number one. That's number two. That would naturally have a knock-on effect. Sorry, that's number one. Number two is that would naturally have a knock-on effect in terms of the involvement of money in that politics. So when people have a clear understanding of what politics is about, that ultimately it's about the allocation of resources, how I would hand over my vote to you in return in hope that you will then do what you're supposed to do in terms of justifying why I voted you. That would ultimately begin to eradicate or begin to whittle down the influence and the effects that Godfathers will over our political system. Okay. Thank you very much, Chairman. If I can add to that as well. Yes, so. Or in summary, what is important, or what I think is important is the improvement of uh, of the political participation from the people. Whether, whether Godfatherism exists um, or not, because I see Godfatherism as Godfathers, they are like the chief whip of the grassroots. That's what I think they should be. 
there's someone attending to the feeling the pulse of the electorate every now and then to know where the um, where the wind of politics will swing at the uh, next elect, uh, election election date. But it's important that political participation is improved, and, and I know we've talked about it in other in other uh, episodes that the more educated, the more involved people are, the more the better our democracy is, the better uh, feel of the aspiration of the people we get. So it's not decided by the money bag uh, godfathers, who I, I must say, most of them don't even have this money on their own. This money, uh, they just have a hub that collects money from other cronies or stooges they've installed elsewhere to just have a big pot and conquer other areas. So it's important that whether there's a godfather or not, the more the people's will and aspiration are realized through improved political participation, the effect of godfatherism will be whittled down by the fact that whether you're a godfather or not, people want to see the plan. They want to see what you're bringing to the table. They want to see what works, what doesn't. That's okay. So that that's that's my take on that one. So without wasting uh, any more of our time, I, I think that will be all time permit for us on this on the first aspect of this uh, feature. Now to the second part, and I know we've loosely classified this part, and these are the people, yeah. the cell people that they continuously strike at political offices just in a bit to stay politically relevant or to just be politically remunerated without actually having any plan or, or, or a clear plan or without having a, a clear plan of any contribution or, or, or meaningful contribution they bring in or, or they contributed to the, to the society. So, and... I, I'll give I'll give you a few examples. Yeah, we've got uh, situations where someone would have run for governor, or we we know the term for governors and presidents are limited to eight years, two yeah. terms. So you get them finishing their eight, eight, eight years tenure, and automatically they think, oh, you know what? The next thing I want to do is go back to the Senate, yes. or go to the Senate. Now they continue the Senate four years, eight years. That one, it can be endless, you know? So about that trend has continued to grow, which means at some point we keep recycling the same set of politicians. So where they finish in their states, whether they've, been, they, they've, they've done well on balanced call cards or they've done... Um, they perform woefully, but we have them in the National Assembly, and it all has a knock-on effect on everyone saying that things are not improving, things are not changing. Well, things won't change if you're recycling the same people who are in the component units and you put them in the federal <laughs> units. So things obviously won't change because you're having the same cell people. So, and we just keep celebrating mediocrity in that way. So, 
what do you think, apart from what I've just said, maybe you can split this thing in the head. What do you think is the cause of this syndrome? I like to call it syndrome. <laughs> now, um, I, I like that question. Now, personally, I think that the problem, when you, when you want to look at it from the cause perspective, personally, I think that there are two things. Number one, and you pointed it out, remuneration. And the second one is the capacity of power. Now, you see, the thing is, to the extent that our politicians are one of the highest paid in the world, you would always have a situation where people want to perpetually remain at the corridors of power. Not for any other reason than for the fact that it pays well. Because, to be honest, you and I know that starting a business or starting a business, engaging yourself in something that requires you to constantly work, innovate, be creative, these things don't come cheap. They don't come easily. And so politics, therefore, is almost about the easiest way to access free money, right? And so that, that, that explains why... You know, having served as members of assembly, you want to become a commissioner. From there, you want to become, you want to go to the House of Reps. From there, you want to go to the Senate. You want to become governor, come back again as a senator. Now, again, you know, just look at how much it costs to sustain just a senator of the Federal Republic of Nigeria. So we've heard from you know sources within the past couple of months that it costs about 30 million to pay the salary of just one senator. What kind of allow that is even just in terms of allowances and all that. We have not factored in constituency projects and all what have you. To the extent that it takes a whopping sum of 125 billion naira to maintain just the National Assembly. In a budget of about say seven to you know six to seven trillion naira, it was actually uh, we can't pay thirty thousand naira as minimum. That contrast is so wide. The difference is so huge. Do you know that someone did a loose calculation and said that you know for you to get what a senator earns in a month, you would have worked for about fifty-four years. I don't know how true that. I've not done the calculation myself, but it just came to my mind now. What someone said. Hopefully, because I know one of his segments will be talking about that national minimum wage uh, issue. So maybe we'll drill more down on that on that when we get to that point. It tells you how expensive it is and how lucrative it is. There's no way you discourage people from participating in that system if you do not drastically do something to reduce that thing that attracts people to that thing in the first place. Now, that is as far as money is concerned in terms of what people pay. Do you know the moment you become a member of reps, you don't fill your car, you don't pay your house rent, government gives you a house, government gives you cars, government pays, basically, do you know it is as ridiculous as the fact that your even airtime is paid for? Now, so tell me why an average person, having enjoyed that life, would all of a sudden, want to go to a system where he begins to feed himself, to buy his own you know, things, to pay his own rent. Do you even know that it is as bad as their fuel, the fuel that they you know, used to you know, drive around, is provided for by government? So basically, what do they use that money for? 
Because if everything is provided for you, if everything is provided to you by virtue of the fact that you work for government or you're a politician, why do you get so much money in the first place? You get cars, you get that. So this is what, for me, this thing actually boils my blood. <laughs> Forgive me, you know, permit my use of language. It's very, very annoying. Now, that's just as of reps. Again, it goes on and on and on, governor and what have you. As long as we don't do something to that, it would continue to repeat itself. Now, you have the capacity of power. Remuneration is one thing. What power allows you to do in Nigeria is a different kettle of fish. So, for example, you, as 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 a member of reps, you can drive with tinted, you know, your your, your the glass of your car tinted. You can drive with covered plate numbers. You can basically do anything you want. You can roam around whenever you want. You have security to yourself. There are so many things you can get away with. Just your ID card alone entitles you to send people to ministries for employment purposes. All those perks attached to power, the capacity of the power that you wield, are also one of the reasons why people want to stay. They just It doesn't even matter if they're not doing anything. They just want to hang around for the political benefits, the contracts, how you can recommend someone up for contract, and then that person will be considered regardless of whether the person meets the basic criteria or not. Those things are largely responsible for why our politics has been largely underdeveloped. The, the, the caliber of leadership that we have, they're not thinking deeply in terms of how to solve the problems that we have, other than the fact that they just want to perpetually remain at the corridors of power. Those things, for me, are the reasons why our politicians want to continue to recycle themselves, if you ask me. Oh, thank you. Th- that makes sense. That makes sense. Are we um, to expect if they it's continue, unfortunate if we're not no. actually experiencing them now? No. I think that in terms of, you know, if you want to talk about consequences, you have to look at how it has affected our the state of our development as a nation, right? So you have countries like China. I mean, I don't like to use examples like US, you know, the Germany's of this world and all. Let's look at countries that started off almost at the same time as we did. Look at China, look at Singapore, look at the UAE and, and all, all the rest. Look at where they are as opposed to where we are as a, as a nation. The, the effect has been that our politics, our development as a nation is largely arrested. It's stagnant. We're not moving forward because what happens over time is that people become cynical. So the same people that we have had since 1999, let, let's, let's talk about, let's just restrict ourselves to this, our immediate past, the ones we can conveniently record. Don't let us go to 1992s and the 80-somethings. You have the recycling of our positions to the point that nothing is working. At the time that we, we came to this democracy in 1999, we had, I think, something short of 1,000 megawatts. There has not been any significant growth. You, today, you, you, you hear them talk about having generated 5,000 megawatts, but they can only distribute, or they can only transmit just 2,000. All those things have affect, affected the level of, because by virtue of the wishes and the aspirations of our people, one would have expected that our leaders should have approached development as a matter of emergency. Because when you do that, when you approach development as a matter of emergency, it has a knock-on effect. Imagine today if our government decides 
to say, you know what, our, our, our ambition for the next four years is to generate 50,000 megawatts of electricity. Imagine the impact that that would have. But when people have been, they have spent so much time at the corridors of power, they become cynical. They begin to say things like, it can't be done. It's not rocket science. Uh, you know, we, not, not nobody can do that. Whereas it's a lie. You have countries doing it almost every now and then. You have China, you know, yeah. adding about 180,000 megawatts on a yearly basis for the past five or 10 years. You have countries, I mean, look at the immediate example of Ghana. Ghana just built an ultra-modern world-class airport. Airport. Look at the state of our international airport, Muritalama made in Lagos. <laughs> look at how that airport looks almost like it's not even worthy to be referred to as a tra an average train station in the UK. Look at our roads. Look at the, the Lagos Banner Expressway. We've been on that road since 99. Yes, there have been improvements, just, you know, marked improvements. But in terms of the real work that needs to be done, nothing significant has been done on that road. You, what you have is contract upon contract upon contract being awarded day and night, every day, with no significant outcome. Look at the, the, the state of our healthcare. Today, you have Nigerians going to Dubai, going to India, Countries that were nowhere in, in, in the, you know in, in the past 40, 30 years. There is no hospital in Nigeria today that can boast of any world-class facility. These are the consequences of what happens when you recycle it. Because you don't have fresh blood coming in. And by fresh blood, I don't mean I don't just mean people who are young at heart. I mean people who are getting into the system, who are ready to fire off things and just create a dynamic mix, a new blend. But you don't have that. You have governors wanting to go to the Senate, senators wanting to become governors, and you have a persistent recycle that doesn't do anything and anybody any good. It also affects the nature and the very state of our politics. You have, when you, if you take time out to examine the state of our discourse, our political discourse, of our national discourse, you would actually be, be disappointed. You have people talk about certificates, talk about, you know, your awarded contracts, talk about things that do not have any significant impact in the life of the people. So that is what happens. Everything is at a standstill. You have a lack of new ideas. You have people who are not... I mean, the, the, let me just mention this to round up. It's a digital world. It's a global... It, it, everything is... On the internet these days, everything needs to be computerized. Now, you have Nigerians who are not talking about... We don't even have a data bank as a country. So how can you fight crime? How can you do certain things? How can you plan? Nobody is talking about, because these things seem huge to them, they seem impossible. But the fact that they've been around for too long will not even encourage them to try out things regardless of how impossible they seem. Do you know now, just to finalize on that, that China is trying to build their own sun so that they will not need to you know, put on so much light at night when they have to work? That is a country that is thinking. Without actually try or strive to compete with China, China is obviously a massive nation. The, the, the core of the problem is the fact that the recycling or using the same cell people is not aligned for fresh ideas. How democracy or how development is meant to work is that fresh ideas come and go. Fresh ideas come and go. And 
people with experience that are there. You, you, it needs to be a balance and a mixture of people with experience that, that have been there for a while and fresh ideas that come in. And the two of them, when they marry together, they improve yeah. or develop a nation. So you can't tell me that um, someone that has been there for that has perennially been in government or been in Senate or governor or something, they, uh, for more than 10 years, would have uh, a knowledge or know much about what's going on outside, outside the affairs of running the states. So there's, it's important that people come in, fresh people come in and they go out. So uh, until that happens, I, I think it's going to keep stunting our democracy like the godfatherism that we, we talked about earlier. I think we've seriously exhausted ourselves on this part and we need to go to the other segment. So I'll kick off the suggestion. I think it's important to make political offices less attractive than they are. I think one of the reasons why our political offices are disattractive is to stem corruption. But that principle has become dysfunctional because people go into political offices as not because they have something to deliver, but as a form of significant remuneration. Exactly. So, so it has to be less attractive. Uh, it has to be at par and com- uh, comparable to other developed countries of the world. Yeah. And the institutions or machineries that deals with corruption has to be stronger. So the fact that someone earns less doesn't mean it automatically has to be corrupt or it automatically has to uh, gain an undue advantage. Uh, or, or erode uh, public trust in him by being elected or appointed into public office. Office. So the institutions that deals with corruption have to be stronger, and the offices have to be less attractive. That's what I've got. So, what have you got for us on how uh, we can deal with this? I, I totally agree with you. Um, it just like you said. I think we need to change our laws. So, because we know that that is a scourge, that is a challenge, we can limit certain things. We can, for example, say that if you have just completed a two term of eight years, you should not contest for another office for the next four years or, or thereabout, just so that we leave room for other people to come in. For example, we can say that if you have just finished your tenure as a governor of a state, you're not allowed to go to the Senate for the next 10, 20 years. Do you understand? So, because we have to be practical about it, as long as the loophole exists, we know that our politicians will continue to, um, you know, exploit those loopholes. Again, there's also that people orientation that people need to understand that, yes, even though these people want to recycle themselves, we hate that perpetuation. We hate them. We can elect not to vote for them. We can choose other people. You understand? We can vote for new people. We can vote for new ideas. But you and I know that's difficult. These people have the machinery of states. They have the power of incubancy. Yes, they do. So that actually gives them an edge over other candidates or freshers. It does. It does, actually. But like I said, let's just go briefly to what happened in Oshuste. Do you know, for example, that if Omishore had not left PDP, PDP would have won the election. So in other words, I believe 
people would have voted for a different party other than what they, what, what they had had for the past eight years. It just tells me that things can be done. Recently, you have in Kwa State where, you know, APC, even though the political um, dynasty in that, in that state has moved over to the PDP, but APC won the election. It tells you clearly that our people can, if they want to, if they choose to, elect new people. Now, whether they will do that is obviously a different kettle of fish. And again, we must continue to talk about these things. We must continue to elevate these conversations to you know, put these things out there so that people can understand that certain things can be done. But it is not enough that the governor, having done his eight years, wants to go to the Senate. We can't just allow that. We can obviously sensitize our people to the dangers inherent in recycling these people. Ultimately, we are the losers. We, we the people, we are the worst off if these things continue to happen. Yes. Thank you very much. That concludes uh, this segment on the political, the strife for political relevance and the addiction to power of our political office holders. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Before we complete today's segment, let's just weigh in on some happenings in the last um, week or so, in the last couple of weeks. Right. I've got some some headlines that are worthy of mention here. Okay. Yeah. Let's keep this as short as possible. For the benefit of listeners. Right. It was reported in Quartz newspaper that Boko Haram attacked um, Nigerian military base, which left up to 100 soldiers dead. And I understand that the government said Boko Haram has been defeated a few months ago. So, but with the alacrity and confidence that made Boko Haram actually attack a military or uh, a military base. Does that not completely throw off what the government, what the federal government has been trying to tell us for the past few months and just deceive Nigerians as to the situation of Boko Haram and Nigeria? Um, I, I I personally don't think that there was an intention to deceive. It may, the federal government may have exaggerated the defeat of Boko Haram, but I don't necessarily think that their intention was to deceive. Now, we can obviously attest to the fact that there has been a significant improvement in terms of the battle against Boko Haram. But at some point, I think they lost that um, that, zeal, that zeal, that need to always keep them at bay. Now, and obviously, we know that Terrorism is a crime of opportunity. So you're, you're, you have terrorists, you know, idling by, waiting for you to relax, and then they will strike. So that, that, I think, is what has happened, and it's quite unfortunate. For me, it's not even so much about the fact that, you know, um, they, that's, we have not really defeated them, even though we said we have technically defeated them. For me, I think it's the aftermath of what is this unfortunate incident, the fact that the 100 soldiers reportedly were killed, and it took us about four days to even understand what was really going on. And then up to now, you have not even had any concrete statement in terms of how a nation should adequately respond to something of this nature. That for me is what I find really sad because ultimately, it's not we must put premium, a reasonable premium on life, that it's not everything that we have to politicize. So the back and forth that has happened out of this is more or less a case of the government trying to save their face, you know, trying to say we're on top of this, we're handling it, when in fact they're not handling anything. 
those guys don't they're not equipped for some reason monies have been awarded and those things are not being bought you have some of, some of those soldiers release videos talking about how they have been given you know so um outdated equipment weapons of 1989 of 1987 this is 2018 for kind of loud so I, I think it's quite sad how the government has handled this. I think it's quite sad also how we're trying to politicize the death of people who are saddled with the responsibility of defending us. It is shameful, it is it is it is it is disgusting to say the least. Yeah. I agree with you. And I think Nigeria we, we've always had that problem of not knowing how to react or deal with issues that or, or incidents that significantly impact or defines us as a nation. Yes. Yes. So I think and it shows in the Army Remembrance um, Day that we have, January 15th of every year, if I'm yes. right. It's so much of, of a government fanfare or celebration than respecting the spirit behind that. They men and women of the of our armed forces that lay their lives on the line for the security and the protection of this country from external and internal invasion every day should always be we re- should always be respected absolutely and and that's that's one of the things you're expecting in countries like america absolutely. They have a they have department of uh, of veterans veteran affairs, and you know that once you join the force, the Marines, the SEAL, and uh, and what have you, you know that well you're putting your life on the line, but you are joining a worthy cause. That even if you lose your life in defense of the sovereignty of your country. You are proud to to have done something like that because you know your family is well will be well taken care of. The government values what you're going, what you're doing mm-hmm. for it. But that doesn't happen in our case. We get cases where members of our police force are saying, "Oh, they're getting their own uniform themselves, or they haven't even been given a uniform for a mm-hmm. while, or they they haven't been paid their compensation, or an army officer is being." punished because he asked for his entitlement and they feel that is why are we even talking about things like this what's the motivation to make these people and and that's why i think we need to give credit to members of our armed forces more than people from other countries without disrespect to them (laughs) because i think in other countries they've got systems that actually make you proud to be members of the armed forces absolutely but that's not in our case. So I think the issue of uh, lack of response or lukewarm attitude to uh, military or armed forces has always been there, which obviously needs a lot of work over time. Thank you for that. I'd like to move on to the next one. The next thing I've got here, the House of Rep, uh, as reported in Vanguard, accused... Um, Professor Yemi Oshibajo of illegally approve, approving 5.8 billion Northeast intervention fund. What that what does that portend for? 
I, 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 I did have a read. I, I tried to read up on you know that old controversy. To be honest, I'm, I'm honest with you. I must say that when I came across that um, news, for me it seems like it was a smear campaign trying to tarnish his image. You would know, you would recall that the vice president came into the office with a lot of goodwill, you know, integrity, reputation, and all of that. But I haven't gone through the things that have been put out in terms of the allegations, you know, how money were approved and, and what have you. I must say that there's some substance to it and it, it squarely puts the responsibility on the shoulders of the vice president to come out and put out a rebuttal, a very strong rebuttal to some of those allegations that have been made. But to just attempt to brush this off as one of the smear campaigns, I think would be a mistake on his part because if you go through those things, you realize that there is some serious substance to those allegations. Yes, um, it may be, may be the, the motive may be political, but then it does not, that motive does not, the political motive does not in any way detract from the substance of the allegations being alleged. And so, yes, he has a responsibility to ensure that he answers to those things. Uh, we'll keep an eye on that one, and be, we'll be looking forward to a report, like you said, from the Office of Vice President. Um, actually, I, I saw the report from the House, I saw it um, Right. Was it yesterday or this morning? Obviously, I've been offline for a while, and I did quickly and I was like, "Well, let's let's hope um, the vice president, who, who is a professor of law, my heart, and a well-respected one at that, um, offers a very strong reporter, and will consider the the response, if any, if any, because obviously our political office holders are they are quick, they are quite dismissive, and and they could." avoid or parry, avoid answering questions like this. So uh, hopefully that will, that will come up uh, in the next uh, few weeks. Um, unfortunately, that, that's all we can take on today's um, episode of Palo Talk. Um, thank you very much, Yomi, for, for your time. Thank you very much. And, um, I look forward to Another episode with you in the, in the nearest future. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you, our listeners, for listening. Uh, if you have any suggestions or comments, uh, you can send it to us at podcasts at shegunakinpelu.com. Until next time, have a great day. <laughs>